On today's episode of DPS, we are returning to our public ownership and democratic planning series to talk about the unexpected legacy, the rich tradition of public ownership and co-ops in the United States of all places. Stay tuned to find out why the revolution in public ownership and democratic management just might take place right here in the United States. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Today's theme is going to be a very familiar one. We have been covering the topic of public ownership for many months on DPS. I've had on a whole host of Corbinites and other thinkers and doers around the ideas of public ownership, starting with Joe Guinan of the Democracy Collaborative, had on Matt Lawrence of the New Commonwealth Project in the United Kingdom, And just last week, we heard from Kat Hobbs from the really exciting uh, pressure group, We Own It, in the UK, talking about some of the promises of public ownership and what that means for mass democracy. Today's program, we're going to be continuing on that theme in earnest and going more specifically into the somewhat surprising history of public ownership in the United States. Thomas Hanna is a research director at the Democracy Collaborative in Washington, D.C., a colleague of Joe Guinan's. He is also the author of a recent book called Our Commonwealth, The Return of Public Ownership in the United States. Thomas, thanks for joining us on DPS. Thank you for having me. This book was a real pleasure to read. Um, I saw you speak on it prior to reading. And I have to say that I was even I was surprised at this really strong legacy of public ownership in the United States. I knew about, you know, the North Dakota Bank, you know, about the Alaska, uh, the Alaskan Sovereign Wealth Fund some of these other cooperative enterprises, the famous sewer socialists of the early 1900s, going back to Victor Berger and, and others, Eugene Debs, of course, being the godfather of that American socialist project in many respects. But there's so much more to public ownership in the United States. Tell the audience just to, to get started here. What, what got you interested in this project? You've been at this for many years now. Public ownership is super hot right now. The Corbinites sort of ushering that in with their late, latest labor manifesto, with the excitement and enthusiasm around changing forms of ownership in society. But you've been at this for much longer. Surely it was a much more boring and, and somewhat idiosyncratic or mundane or what, whatever have you. Maybe a lonely topic, we'll call it, some years ago. What got you started here? Right. Yeah, I started researching public ownership right after the financial crisis in 2010 and 2011. And at that time, quite rightly, there was a lot of interest, emerging interest in cooperatives, worker cooperatives, especially in the United States, following the collapse of the financial system and the deep economic crisis that we were in. And I wanted to go beyond cooperatives. I think cooperatives are very exciting and they're very important, but I was very interested in other forms of alternative forms of ownership, especially public ownership. And I was researching the topic and I randomly one day stumbled on the fact that in Nebraska, which is a pretty politically conservative state these days. Uh, In Nebraska, every single person and business gets their electricity from a publicly owned electric utility or a cooperative. Um, And that's a state of, I think, about 1.5 million people or so. Uh, And there are no private electric utilities, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to find out why 
that was the case. And so I started to dig back. And you mentioned in the introduction some of the historical reasons uh, why that was the case. And it's very, very interesting in, in the case of Nebraska. In Nebraska, in the early part of the 20th century, they had a pretty broad ecosystem of smaller electric utilities, public utilities, cooperative utilities, smaller private utilities. And then starting in the 1920s, they started to get really bought up by some of the large electric holding companies based out of you know, New York and, and other places backed by Wall Street banks. And it really started to consolidate the electric system in Nebraska, you know, massive corporate consolidation. And the people of Nebraska, you know, were starting to feel the ill effects of that, you know, rising rates, poor service quality, so on and so forth. So they started to try and have a, a counterattack against that. Uh, but they were running into all sorts of corporate oppositions, the type of things that, you know, we would see today, you know, corporate capture of the state legislature, for instance, and, and inability to do things uh, through the political system. So they decided to do an end run around the political system and they organized for referendums and they just basically formed a popular mass movement for public power. And basically by 1949, Nebraska had become an all public power state and they've remained that way ever since. Uh, and they, they have lower electric rates. Uh, they have you know, better service quality than many of their surrounding states. And I, I found that really fascinating. And so that was just really the start of a, a deeper dive into this question of public ownership in the United States. And, and what I found is that because of the way that the United States' political system is structured, it's, it's a more decentralized system than, say, the United Kingdom or some other countries, France, for instance. Because of the way the United States' political system is structured, there's actually much more capacity for public ownership um, and alternative ownership more generally at the local level. There, there's more political power there. And, and I sometimes make the joke uh, when I'm in the UK that in the UK, local city councils have the ideology, they have the socialist ideology, but they, they don't have the political power. But here in the United States, our city councils are pretty powerful comparatively around the rest of the world. So we have the power, but in many cases, we don't have the ideology to, to go along with that. Uh, if city councils in the United States had, I think, the ideology and, and some of the, the sort of sophistication of, of you know, city councils in the UK, along with their power, they could do really amazing things economically, especially around public ownership and, and cooperative ownership and, and other things like that. So yeah, as I said, it's the, the beginning of a, a deep dive. And I started to maybe write a paper, I think, uh, was the beginning on the on the history and experience of public ownership in the United States. And that paper turned into a report. And, and that report turned into a book because I simply found so many examples of, of public ownership in the United States. And, you know, just you know, just a few examples, for instance, you know, we have around 2000 publicly owned electric utilities. And along with cooperatives, they supply about 25% of the nation's electricity. Uh, there's about, I think, 85, 90% of Americans get their water from a publicly owned utility, which is a massively higher percentage than in, in other countries like the UK, where they've gone about privatizing their water system. Almost all public transport systems in the United States are publicly owned at this point. Uh, by law, all commercial airports, there's about 500 and something commercial airports. By law, they all have to be publicly owned. And again, this is quite different from around the rest of the world where there's been a decent amount of, of airport privatization. And then interesting things as well. You had mentioned the Alaska Permanent Wealth Fund um, in the intro, but there's uh, several sovereign wealth funds, these large publicly owned wealth funds in the United States in different places. One of the really interesting ones that I found is in Texas. There's the Texas Permanent School Fund, which is a massive uh, sovereign wealth fund. It's about $45 billion 
dollar fund, um, and it owns directly owns I think two million acres of land, associated mineral rights, real estate, stocks, bonds, you know, all those things, and they basically take dividends out of this fund every year, about a billion dollars every year out of this fund, and they use it to provide services uh, to the education system, um, so that they directly give it to the education system to reduce costs, um, and then they also backstop their borrowing so that they get uh, lower interest rates on bonds and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, basically their entire education system is subsidized by public ownership in the in Texas, which I, I find fascinating. You know, Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, used to like to say that, uh, you know, that was the Texas miracle, you know, the high growth, low taxes, so on and so forth. Um, but he, he didn't say that it was also predicated on socialism, which, which I found <laughs> quite interesting. Well, now that's just not fair, Thomas. You're you're predicating these kind of prescriptions on on uh, a highly socialist region of the country. Wait, wait a minute. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not right at all. Well, because I mean, so anyway, that little joke is they say, you know, these, these, these projects are talking about Alaska. You're talking about Texas. You're talking about Nebraska. You're talking about North Dakota. These forms of public ownership are cropping up and are very stable and strong in, in places of the country where, you know, these are the places where most socialists in the U.S. move away from as soon as they're old enough and f- financially stable enough to do so, to go to the coasts, right? To get the hell out of Nebraska and move to Brooklyn or San Francisco or Philadelphia or Chicago, right? Because they, they just want they, – they need to escape uh, the, the confines of that, you know, generally speaking, socially and, and economically conservative environment. And yet here are – the kinds of places where economic, uh, you know, collective public ownership seem to be thriving in some senses. Now, just to preface the what we'll, we'll talk about later in our conversation, uh, for the audience's sake, uh, we're not being Pollyannish about this. We do recognize there are limitations. And in, in one of the most interesting parts of your book here, Our Commonwealth, is how you talk about how we 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 must go and we very easily could go much further than these limited forms of public ownership to democratize these, these projects. So that's just a little, uh, a little caveat going forward. Talk to us a little bit about before we get started, we've talked a lot about public ownership, but what is it? You have a really interesting section at the beginning of your book where you kind of lay out some definitions and almost a taxonomy of public ownership. There are public enterprises. People talk about public uh, ownership, enterprises, what have you, in in a variety of ways. What do you mean uh, by the term public ownership? Public ownership means different things to different people around the world. In the modern context, public ownership is starting to be expanded a little bit in its definitions uh, to be a sort of maybe a catch-all for different types of ownership that are not, you know, quote-unquote capitalist or for-profit private ownership. So some people will now say public ownership and they'll refer to cooperatives or social enterprise, um, community ownership, social ownership, all these things together with under the rubric of public ownership. And I think that's fine. Um, I think that's uh, valuable. But for me personally, working in this field of of alternative ownership forms and design, I like to maybe break that out a little bit more and to differentiate between the different ownership forms. Uh, so I think employee ownership or worker ownership is is one thing. Community ownership is another thing. You know, social enterprise, social ownership is, is is another thing. And then public ownership for me is very explicitly about the state, and it's about where the public via representative state institutions or or agencies uh, plays a role in the economy. Um, so, you know, for instance, 
what I'm talking about in, in some of those examples at the beginning uh, in my first answer was these are, are fully state enterprises. They're essentially run directly by local city councils um, or state government, um, sometimes through quasi-independent uh, agencies or authorities, uh, especially with airports. You think about airport authorities and and so on and so forth. These are you know quasi-independent of the state, and, and we will discuss that, I'm sure, further when we're talking about democratization and, and the, the perils and pitfalls of, of autonomy and independence and, mm. and direct uh, ownership as well. However, you know, Public ownership can also be a little bit more formulaic in many places in the world. Public, you know, the state owns shares in companies. So, uh, you know, maybe 51% of a company will be owned by a public agency and then another 49% will be owned privately um, on stock markets or, or so on and so forth. So uh, at some point you have to start thinking about, well, what is public then? You know, so if, for instance, I think, Air France, let's just take Air France, um, SAS, some of the big airline companies around the world, Singapore Airlines, so on and so forth. These are publicly owned enterprises um, to an extent. So Singapore Airlines, I think, you know, 50% of their shares are owned by uh, the state of Singapore. Uh, I think the same for SAS, um, you know, Norway and, and Sweden and so on own about 50%. And then, you know, France, Air France, uh, the French and Dutch governments own, I think, about 10% of, of Air France, uh, their shares there. So, you know, there's there's different share ownership schemes. Uh, so what, what constitutes public ownership there? You know, uh, for me personally, I believe it's public ownership kicks in where the public has a controlling interest in the business. So where the public is either the largest single shareholder or they have enough shares that they can prevail in any shareholder votes. So it's usually like 30% or, or so on and so forth. Definitely, you know, 50% or above, I would consider that to be publicly owned as well. Um, that type of share ownership uh, scheme doesn't isn't really the same in the United States. We don't really have those kind of public enterprises here. Although, you know, we could. Um, and I think a lot of people are talking about public ownership in the form of social wealth funds and other things that could take ownership shares in companies and build up ownership shares. Uh, and I think that's something that we should think about, but it, it's not really um, something that we have here currently in the United States. So you mentioned a debate or a, a set of difficulties uh, around state enterprises, state-run enterprises, and more sort of autonomous, directly owned worker cooperatives. Let's let's throw this into the whole uh, definitional taxonomical ta taxonomy taxonomical taxonomical. Yes, that's a word uh, debate here. I first came around the notion of cooperatives following the Great Recession as a socialist in, 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 a, in a very skeptical way because the anarchist, the what I've called the – and others have called uh, the vaguely anarchist zeitgeist that emerged in the wake of the Occupy movement and the movement of the squares globally uh, dictated that these cooperative movements were viewed as being outside the state somehow. Uh, or at very best, uh, sort of peripheral uh, or tangential to the state. There were a lot of uh, political theorists talking about the interstices of the state. That was a word that exploded. If you did some kind of word analysis on Google Ngram, you'd find the interstices exploded around 2010 to 2013 or, or thereabouts for the, for the academics out there. You'll know. 
What is this relationship between the cooperatives and and the state? How have you seen this uh, transform? A lot of people look to Mondragon in Spain, for example, as a much more autonomous, autonomously directed form of cooperative. How do you sort of navigate these distinctions? Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually. Um, I do a decent amount of work in the United Kingdom as well as the United States. And in the United Kingdom, cooperatives are viewed very differently than in the United States. There, there's a, a deep distrust, I think, in many parts of the labor movement in the United Kingdom and on the left about cooperatives because cooperatives were essentially used in many ways as a backdoor to privatization um, in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, and a lot of services that were publicly owned, uh, you know, run by city councils or run by the government that were insourced were then outsourced through the formation of these cooperatives through the voluntary sector. And a lot of people in the United Kingdom now, a lot of people in the labor movement um, talking about municipalization or remunicipalization, bringing services and enterprises back in-house, reversing the wave of privatization that happened in the 1980s and the 1990s. And they are wary of cooperatives. They they would rather have these things run directly in-house um, by the local government than having them run by cooperatives. You know, that being said, we, we haven't really had that issue in the United States for two reasons. First of all, cooperatives in the United States just haven't really been a large enough force so far in American history. You know, worker cooperatives in this country specifically are, you know, maybe five or 6,000 people. You know, the cooperative movement generally is much larger, but in terms of actual worker cooperatives, it, it's still relatively small. And on the other hand, they haven't been used politically for privatization. They were, they were not used in the same way by, you know, the, the conservative government, labor government uh, in, in the 1990s to force through this privatization of public services. Uh, so we haven't really had that problem. We haven't really had to confront that in the United States um, as much as they have in the UK. I think it's a very important question, though, you know, and, and for me personally, I think that there some things definitely should be publicly owned. I'm, I'm fully support that. I think that the state should play a role uh, on behalf of the public uh, in certain sectors and in certain industries. And a lot of my book is is taking a look at different sectors of the U.S. economy and, and trying to determine where public ownership could be expanded um, and where it could be scaled up. Uh, but other things are more conducive to the cooperative sector and to worker ownership as well. And I think that the state can play a role in expanding the cooperative sector. And, you know, one example, for instance, is in retail. Maybe you want the state to run, you know, small corner stores and, you know, shops and, and whatnot, but uh, maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe that's not the not particularly the role of the state. However, public ownership of land could definitely enable the development of cooperative businesses, cooperative retail businesses, small businesses. It can count, you know, We can use public ownership of land to counter the dominance of the large corporations, the Walmarts, the Amazons, and, and so on and so forth. And some places are, are starting to do this. They're starting to essentially take public ownership of land, especially at the municipal level, and think about how you can use that to revive Main Street and bring back you know, cooperatives and, and small businesses uh, that have been really decimated over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, there's a very interesting report that came out from the UK. Most of my audience, I would say, probably haven't heard of it yet. They will very soon because I'm going to have one of its authors on. Uh, but as that's called Land for the Many by Georges Monbiot and uh, Laurie McFarlane. Laurie McFarlane is a young Corbinite who I also met over here in Washington, D.C. some months ago when the Corbinites made their venture over to the Democracy Collaborative and the Next System Project. 
And uh, they're, they're having some really interesting ideas about how to uh, collectivize or, – sorry, collectivize land. That's, that's not a good thing to say, Thomas. There's a bad <laughs> legacy there. We're not collectivizing land. Uh, there will be no long march, no Mao, no struggle sessions <laughs> in, the, in the jungle. Uh, to, how to make uh, land public to, mm-hmm. to basically uh, euthanize the developer class to uh to channel our, our boy canes here uh, such that yeah these cooperative uh cooperatives could arise in the retail sector not being crippled by these ridiculous rental prices and so on so yeah so a lot of interesting ways to think around these dichotomies uh, particularly the dichotomy that i just presented you with and I'm, it's really exciting to see that we're not faced with this either this uh, anarchist sort of autonomous cooperative that exists outside the state or this sort of hyper status, top down bureaucratic, more kind of like a social democratic legacy, uh, either in the Soviet Union or in, say, the British Labor Party. So it's really exciting. We've got a lot of, uh, f- uh, you know, ideas are, are really uh, flourishing and spreading and, and cross pollinating in, in a really exciting way. Before we move forward in some of our debates, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in the United States with respect to cooperative ownership. I'm inclined to start talking about things like the Preston model in the UK and, and other projects, but we, we have some – we could talk about that as well, but we have some cooperative movements going on underneath our, our nose, don't we? Yeah, exactly. And just to maybe add on to, to the previous question, in addition to actual direct relationships between public ownership and you know cooperatives and, and trying to, to use public ownership to seed new cooperatives and to scale cooperatives. There's also the question that I think we'll probably get into a little bit later about, you know, democratizing public ownership and increasing the rights of workers and other stakeholders in uh, public o- publicly owned enterprises uh, as well and bringing over some of the principles from the internal governance structures of cooperatives into public enterprise. And and I think that's one thing that I, I think is, is quite interesting in the cooperative movement here in the United States that's starting to develop. And that's uh, multi-stakeholder cooperatives, which are coming in from Quebec across the border and starting to take hold here. And, and that's this is this idea that uh, within a cooperative, um, you can bring together different groups of stakeholders uh, into the governance structure. So, for instance, a multi-stakeholder cooperative could have worker uh, representation, uh, worker members. It could have consumer members. It could have producer members. It could have buyer or or purchaser members. Uh, and they all get together in this multi-stakeholder cooperative form to come together and make decisions and to, to own the enterprise. And I, I think that's a really interesting example that I've been really taking some lessons from for the governance structure of publicly owned enterprises and, and into some of my work for advising the UK Labour Party on what democratic public ownership for the future might look like. Also, you know, in the United States, as I said, said, you know, worker ownership, uh, worker cooperatives are relatively small. However, they are growing uh, both in interest and, and I think in size. And, and a lot of that has to do with the really hard work that people in the cooperative movement are putting together um, on the ground and also linking that up with both public procurement and nonprofit procurement and also politics and, and city government. And, you know, really interesting stuff is happening in New York City, for instance. Uh, they've, for the past uh, two or three years, been allocating money out of the municipal budget, uh, the city council budget, to support the development of worker cooperatives. And I think they've somewhat tripled, maybe tripled the number of worker cooperatives in the city in the past three years. Uh, New York is also home to 
I believe it's the largest worker cooperative in the United States, Cooperative Home Care Associates, uh, which also is a unionized cooperative. And I think that's another place that's quite an interesting development in the United States, because traditionally cooperatives in in many places in the world uh, have not been unionized. Mondragon famously uh, does not have unions. They have a social council that plays the role of a union. And there's been a lot of critiques uh, of Mondragon for their relationship with unions in the Basque region of Spain. But, you know, Mondragon has actually come over here to the U.S. They came over in 2009 and they they signed an agreement with the Steelworkers Union in the United States to try and set up union cooperatives, where basically the steelworkers would play the role of the social council in the Mondragon system in U.S. Uh, worker cooperatives. And unions in other places, other unions in the United States are becoming more interested in, in cooperative models. I think, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, unions were, were really not interested in ownership um, and, and owning uh, the means of production and, and whatnot. They were more interested in the collective bargaining agreements and the, you know, really just representing the workers in the enterprises uh, rather than, you know, trying to move towards ownership or co-determination or any of these schemes that exist in other parts of the world. Uh, but I think that's really changed over the past 30, 40 years. Um, and part of that's just due to the, the massive pressure that unions have been under in the United States, the, the massive attacks uh, by the forces of capital on, on labor. Um, and now they're really thinking about new ways and, and new things that, that they need to be doing around ownership. So, you know, for instance, Cooperative Home Care Associates, which I just mentioned, is unionized by the SCIU. Other unions as well have been very interested, I think, in worker ownership and, and are starting to get involved there as well. So, you know, we're talking about multi-stakeholder cooperatives. We're talking about union cooperatives. We're talking about public support, you know, public budgets that are being allocated to the development of worker cooperatives. So I, I really think, the, you know, the United States is is on the cutting edge, I think, of worker cooperative development around the world and about thinking differently about worker cooperatives and their relationship with other alternative forms of ownership and the state and, and so on. So I talked last week with my guest, Kat Hobbs, quite a bit about these governance structures. She talks about bringing in, you know, a very, various sectors of society that are oftentimes not involved in, in the, in the governance of cooperatives and publicly owned enterprises, such as users networks. That's one thing that is a touchy subject though. Uh, because users, so-called consumers, or God forbid, taxpayers, uh, have been wielded as a subject position against uh, left economic and political projects since the beginning of the neoliberal project. And so these are, are, are difficult and fraught territories that we're treading on, but, it, but, but they're very necessary. To, let's go in a little bit more for our audience about – these kind of uh, intersecting, cross-cutting, however, what have you, sort of structures of governance. Why is it that traditionally many cooperatives have rejected the union model? Because I think that really gets to not only some of the limitations of that kind of traditional autonomous cooperative model in terms of you get you get to really a model of collective self-exploitation, <laughs> uh, which 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 can get ugly and it can sort of run away with itself pretty quickly. Uh, what happens when you start introducing unions into that sector? Yeah, I, I think I'll start with just maybe some of the limitations of yeah, sure. worker cooperatives, as you uh, as you mentioned. You know, I think there's a reason why worker cooperatives haven't scaled to the extent that they've taken over the economy, and we all live in a cooperative commonwealth or or something like a like some of the the visions have been. And and there are serious limitations uh, of cooperatives. 
you know, for instance, the plywood cooperatives in in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, they don't really exist uh, anymore, but they were a big subject of study in academia in the 1970s and 1980s. And the reason that they don't exist anymore is because at a certain point, the cooperative owners of those plywood cooperatives decided that they would either wanted to retire or they wanted out of the business or that their plywood cooperatives were worth a lot of money and, and they could get a, a good amount of money by selling out. And they essentially closed up shop and sold their businesses to their competitor private cooperatives. And that you know that cooperative sector uh, uh, went away. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of self-interest in in the cooperative sector. You know, each cooperative without other structures involved. Let me just right, say that right, right. without other structures involved, if cooperatives are free floating in a capitalist sea in a in a capitalist marketplace, marketplace, there are a lot of pressures on those cooperatives to do the same sort of things as capitalist businesses. You know, these are for-profit money-making entities, and they are of competition and 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 whatnot. So. Sometimes they do things that are very antithetical to their cooperative values. The cooperatives in Emilia-Romagna in, in Italy are, are an example of this as well. Uh, Emilia-Romagna has some of the highest density of cooperatives in the world. You know, I think something like 40% or so of their uh, economy is produced by the cooperative sector. And they have networks of small businesses and, and you know, they have some very large cooperative federations. And, and there's a lot of small cooperatives and and they're really interesting and, and whatnot, but they also have some very large construction cooperatives and, and other things that have been around for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. And they, you know, they're basically three or 400 worker cooperative members who are, you know, part of this very small, so maybe quote unquote elite. And then they have like four or 5,000 wage laborers in, in these cooperatives. So they're basically have pulled up the ladder behind them in many ways. Um, it's very high barrier to entry to move from wage labor to becoming a cooperative member. You know, they're, it's essentially benefiting, you know, this very small group of families who've been around for a very long time and so on. You know, Mondragon's somewhat similar. It's a little bit less so, but, you know, even in Mondragon, they have, I think it's around half of the number of people. There's about 75,000, 80,000 uh, workers in Mondragon. Only about half of those are cooperative members and the other half are wage labor. Um, and they have, you know, Mondragon developed in the 1950s in the Basque region of Spain when the Basques were being horrendously oppressed by the Franco government. And they were very, you know, they were oppressed economically, socially, politically, and, and so on. Uh, but it had this perverse uh, effect of allowing the Mondragon cooperatives to develop in a very sort of protected and isolated economic atmosphere. And so, you know, not only was the Basque region isolated economically, but Spain itself, because it was under a uh, fascist dictatorship, was isolated from the rest of the world economy. Uh, so the Mondragon cooperatives were able to develop, they were able to scale, they were able to become embedded in the Basque culture uh, to the point where when they did have to hit the world market in the 1970s, when, when things started to open up after Franco's death they were you know they had developed enough that they were able to do so and they were able to compete but even so they did have to make many sacrifices to some of their cooperative ethos and principles they they had to basically go out and you know set up factories in china and brazil and poland and and other places and in those factories they're not using cooperative labor i mean to mondragon's credit i think that they recognize this and that they're uh, you know there's a plan or they want to to you know set up cooperatives actual real cooperatives in in these areas but they did have to make a lot of sacrifices and and they they do recognize that so you know cooperatives in a, in a capitalist system are limited uh very much so 
Hello, everybody. I trust that you are enjoying my conversation with Thomas Hanna on public ownership and democratic self-management on today's episode of DPS. That man is an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to all of these things. I really learned a lot, and I know you will too. And if you listen to DPS on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, or on any basis for that matter, I'm sure that you have learned a lot from my guests over the past two and a half to three some odd years. And if you have learned something, if you've benefited from this show, I ask that you become a subscriber of DPS Media by heading over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and smashing that subscribe button. You can become a member at the $8 level. You will receive access to our weekly B-sides as well as some of the other bonus content and access to me. You'll get access to our Discord message board as well. I often solicit patron questions for our B-sides so you get access to our guests as well, which is a pretty cool benefit. You can ask these people anything. They're some of the most knowledgeable people around, which which is why I bring them on the show. So consider becoming a supporter today. Not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of supporting New Left Agenda and keeping this political project alive and thriving, but you'll get access to an additional episode each week. My episode with Thomas Hanna, the B-side that's going to be coming out later this week, is really good. We're going to be continuing on this theme of public ownership and breaking down some of the contradictions and pitfalls and traps of this class struggle-oriented social democratic road to socialism. So you guys are not going to want to miss that. Thanks again for listening. I hope that uh, all of you are benefiting from this in some way. If you don't have pockets deep enough to become a subscriber, maybe someday you will. You know, that Bernie Sanders guy has a plan for uh, economic prosperity for all. You know, maybe maybe we'll all have money to support our favorite socialist uh, podcast and video creators very soon. If not, uh, keep trucking on, folks. Hope you guys are enjoying this show. Back to it. I think this is a really important development in the the theory and the practice of the cooperative movement, this kind of self-awareness, this uh, self-critique, looking at other models to see how we could sort of improve those structures. I do also know that in the post-Occupy era, it was was much more ideological, I might say, in many sectors of the cooperative movement, Uh, much more ideological in terms of projecting what was possible or there's a sort of self-conception of the cooperative aspirations as the reality, uh, which really covered over a lot of these contradictions and pitfalls and traps of operating cooperatives in a sea of, of capitalist logic. And so it's really, it's really great to see people grappling with these contradictions in a, in a serious way. One of the things that I talk quite a bit about on my show and the reason why I like to bring on Corbinites and people like yourself who are advising the labor government in this process is to talk about this integration, this really crucial and critical integration of these class struggle, social democratic governments, we'll call them, say, of Corbin or, say, Bernie Sanders with this more traditional cooperative movement and to watch the two sort of decide how they can help each other. And promote each other's projects. And one of the one of the, the the most iconic models here is the Preston model, and that comes from the United States, in a sense, at least uh, much of the ideas that were integrated there. Talk to the audience about the Preston model, and and how that's now becoming that's laying the foundations, producing capacities for what the UK Labour Party is trying to do at the state level. 
So in my last uh, answer, I said that without other structures involved, uh, there are a lot of issues with cooperatives getting to scale uh, and so on. And some of those structures are the things that we are interested in at the Democracy Collaborative, what we've been working on in Cleveland, Ohio, and and what's been put in place in Preston. So it's essentially, it's a it's a different model of of cooperative development. So in Evergreen, the Evergreen cooperatives in Cleveland, Ohio, there are three, at presently three worker-owned cooperatives, but they're not freestanding. They're not free-floating in a capitalist marketplace. They are linked together, just like the Mondragon cooperatives, they're linked together by a corporation, a, a company. In this case, in Cleveland, it's a community-owned corporation that links these things together so that when the Businesses are profitable. They're kicking up a percentage of their profits to the corporation. The corporation's using that to scale the network, to build new cooperatives, to you know expand over time. And also, they are linked to the procurement, the purchasing power of very large public institutions. Um, so in the case of Cleveland, we're talking about anchor institutions. We're talking about uh, hospitals, nonprofit hospitals and universities in this area of Cleveland. There's three of them. They do about $3 billion of purchasing every year. Traditionally, almost none of that $3 billion was from the local surrounding communities. Uh, These communities that surround these anchor institutions are very disenfranchised. Uh, They have very high rates of poverty. They have very low incomes. Uh, They have very high rates of returning citizens. And they did these anchor institutions, you know, had very limited economic contact with these neighborhoods. So the whole point or the whole model for Evergreen is that to set up these worker owned cooperatives in these low income neighborhoods and then link them to the procurement power of these institutions. So, for instance, there's a large uh, greenhouse basically does, you know, makes lettuce and herbs and, and so on and so forth uh, for the cafeterias of the anchor institutions, the hospitals, universities. There's a one of the larger laundries, a, gre- a green laundry in Cleveland that does the linens uh, and things for the universities and for the hospitals and, and so on and so forth. So what's essentially been created in Cleveland is a, a sort of a sheltered market for the development of worker cooperatives. Uh, in very low-income neighborhoods. Uh, So rather than being free-floating and competing in a capitalist marketplace, they still are. They're still very competitive. There's, you know, they can, you know, just recently the laundry had a massive expansion where it took over the business of a a for-profit, large, international, multinational uh, corporate laundry who was pulling out and they turned the contract over to the to Evergreen. Uh, so they're very competitive. However, you know, just like in Mondragon, you know, you know, there needs to be an ecosystem of support uh, to get these cooperatives um, off the ground and to get them developed and and to get them thriving before they can go out there and just start to compete in this capitalist marketplace. And there also needs to be something that anchors them um, to the community. You know, I talked before about the plywood cooperatives in the Pacific Northwest and so on. You know, that kind of thing can't happen with the Evergreen cooperatives because the these things are are anchored together. They're linked together by a community corporation. They can't just someone can't come in and just you know make a, a giant offer for the laundry, for instance, and the laundry cooperative members decide, oh yeah, that's a great offer. We're going to sell out and you know take our money and and you know go live a great life. You know this is a community uh, structure that is in place over top of them that doesn't allow that to happen. Um, so the evergreen model. Uh, was an inspiration, uh, one of the inspirations for Preston. Mondragon was another one. Uh, you know, certain things going on in different places in the world were were looked at by people in Preston after 
the financial crisis. Preston had, like many communities, made a lot of bets on corporate investment and corporate development to get them out of a, a really troubled economic situation. Preston, just like Cleveland, is a, a deindustrialized city. It's in the north of England. You know, they they were one of the most disenfranchised and and you know, disinvested parts of England uh, for for many years, uh, and they were really pinning a lot of their hopes on a, a big corporate development project, a big shopping mall coming in, and then the financial crisis happened, credit froze, and the the shopping mall fell apart. So they decided to go another direction. They looked at what was happening in Cleveland. They looked at what was happening in in Mondragon and and other places, uh, and they really took the model uh, and they adapted it to their local circumstance, uh, and they really have done amazing things with it. They've redirected hundreds of millions of pounds from the anchor institutions into the local economy. And they've really, uh, they really started to see the effects of that. Uh, they're starting to set up cooperatives. And recently, you know, they've been named one of the most improved councils in, in the UK. And, and it's really a, an inspiration for other councils, uh, especially those councils in the UK that are under Labour Party government. Uh, as I said, very early on in this in this conversation, you know, unfortunately, councils in the UK don't have the same sort of economic powers as councils do in the United States. So they really have to think differently. Um, they really have to think through some of these other models, um, these procurement models and other things, uh, in order to counteract the you know the terrible austerity and disinvestment that's that's being forced on them by uh, the national government in in the United Kingdom. So yeah, these models, Preston model, the Cleveland model. They're, they're really being run with, not only in the UK, but also in Europe and, and the United States as, as opportunities, um, local opportunities to, to combine these, this experimentation, this interesting economic experimentation with a new politics, and especially in the UK with a, with a left-wing socialist Corbynite labor politics as well. It seems to me the distinction between where we're we used to where in very recent history when, when I first sort of became a socialist and started reading about these things and becoming aware where I said I was very skeptical of this vaguely anarchist zeitgeist and this kind of autonomistic uh, cooperative movement. Uh, the distinction between that moment and where we are now is that we're moving away from these purely prefigurative prospects, right? These purely prefigurative imaginative exercises. And now we're starting to think about the cooperative movement as uh, almost a battleground, sort of laying down a set of weapons and capacities and strengths and, and trump cards, if you will, in the face of inevitable capital flight, capital strike, other political pressure weapons that the ruling class possesses when the working class and left polit political projects uh, become successful. And this is surely on the minds of the UK labor leadership right now with a Corbyn government looking uh, to be on the brink of power at some point in the future, perhaps. These types of concerns are, are, <laughs> are perhaps nightmare fuel for Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell right now. What do you do when you get in power and you face the wrath of capital. Talk to us about how these types of capacities found in cooperative movements and at the municipal levels enable a sort of far-reaching and wide-sweeping uh, socialist agenda like we, we hope to see in, in the Labor Party in the UK and in the, the, the Sanders movement in the United States. So I'm going to answer that, I think, in two parts. And, and the first part is that 
you know, the United Kingdom, I think, is is starting to wake up, as are parts of the rest of the world, wake up to the reality that the United States has lived in for, for quite some time. And, you know, sort of the counterpoint to the way that our political system is structured, the decentralization of our political system, on the one hand, as I said, it allows for more experimentation at the local level. On the other hand, it really allows for capital to play one jurisdiction off against another jurisdiction. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've all seen that in, in the past yeah. you know, couple of years with the Amazon HQ to headquarter debacle, uh, you know, bidding process. But that that's not uncommon in the United States. That's actually the common way of doing economic development. Essentially, local communities are being blackmailed against each other by large corporations in this suicidal race to the bottom on job qualities, tax revenues, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, we give around 60 or $70 billion a year in, in tax breaks, subsidies, uh, so on and so forth to large corporations. And a lot of that is just trying to lure them from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction. I mean, you also right. see this with the union movement and, you know, the the flight of capital from, you know, more unionized parts of the North uh, and the Midwest down to the South, to the, the non-union states uh, in the South as well. And it, it's it's just a lived reality. I mean, this this is the thing that in, in the United Kingdom, People sometimes look at the Preston model and and other things and they say, well, you know, well, that's just municipal protectionism. And that's just, you know, if everyone just bought local and and so on, it would be it would be this terrible thing where you're just beggaring your neighbor. And but that's what capital is doing already. I mean, that's that's the process that exists in the United States and and has existed. I mean, I remember one story that that maybe you appreciate because we live in the same area, but. In Maryland, there's uh, Marriott, which is the large hotel chain. They're headquartered in Maryland. And they announced, I think it was in the, the 1990s or maybe the early 2000s, they announced that they were going to be leaving their headquarters in Maryland and and all of the, you know, all the neighboring jurisdictions, D.C., Northern Virginia, so on and so forth, started putting together bids and how much money, tax breaks, subsidies we would give to Marriott to relocate, you know, so on and so forth. And then in the end, Marriott signed a new deal with, uh, with the, I think it was Montgomery County, the jurisdiction in Maryland to stay in Montgomery County. And then there was some investigative journalism done after the fact. And it came out that Marriott absolutely had no intention of moving. It was they literally put it out there. They leaked it out there as a blackmail strategy to get a better deal out of Montgomery County. They never actually planned to move anywhere. And and it's just, you know, that sort of thing just happens all the time uh, in, in the United States. And uh, yeah, that's really yeah. The, that's really the stuff of neoliberalism in the U.S. Uh, academics like Jamie Peck have been writing about this kind of um, competitive dynamics of local and state and regional neoliberalism, which is, I mean, far more than any kind of just entrenched ideology. It's literally just the the ability of businesses to play these kind of decentralized governance structures against one another, you know, across the country, really, which is why you see, you know, organizations like ALEC so successful at spreading uh, various legislative, you know, initiatives at the state and local level. It's really useful, I think, to think about neoliberalism in those ways and such that when, when you know, the, the, the sort of capitalist apologists and their pay, the paid prize fighters of the ruling class sort of spit out their mouth these words, you know, municipal protectionism, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, you've been doing the exact opposite for 35 years, uh, right? This sort of hyper municipal uh, abuse via, quote, competition. Um, which is really just, you know, it's it's like um, it's extortion. 
you know, is, is really what it is. And so changing the narrative around that, I think is really crucial. Sorry for that little, uh, well, no, I, I mean, the, the one I really like is that we're being told now by various talking heads, mostly centrists that why are we so focused on ownership? You know, why, uh, you know, why is Jeremy Corbyn the labor party so focused on ownership? We should just be focused on, you know, what works and, you know, this sort of vague liberal centrism. And, and that's just, that's an absolute joke to me because, you know, now we've been 40 years into this experiment, this new liberal experiment where ownership was everything. It was all about changing ownership. It was all about privatization. It was all about marketization. It was all about taking what was public, what was held in common and, and you know, really funneling that to a small group of elites uh, around the world. And now that that project has run into the rocks and it's on the ropes, we should all just forget about ownership once again. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, it, yeah. it's really funny to me. And I, I think the second point I was, I was just going to make on the, that last question was that, you know, what I think we've learned historically, both from you know, recent events um, in Cleveland, Preston, elsewhere, but also from the municipal socialists, the Skassen sewer socialism tradition of the early 20th century, is that you know you need a base, you need an institutional base to build politics from the ground up, local politics, and that base can be cooperatives and public enterprise, and and you know that's that's a popular thing. When you provide real services and you lower costs for consumers and you improve services and so on, that this really is popular. I mean, that was the that was what was understood by the not only the gas and sewer socialists, the municipal socialists, but also by the progressives and the populists is that to build a political movement, you really needed to de deliver services at the city level, at the municipal level. These institutions outlive the politics sometimes. Uh, for instance, we've been talking a little bit about the, you know, the electric utilities, the water utilities, uh, the land, and so on and so forth. But you know, these things have all their roots in this progressive populist and municipal socialist era. And long after those political traditions were were destroyed in many cases or defeated, these institutions live on. Um, and and because they're popular and because they deliver better services and better quality for for the people and the residents in these areas. I mean, one of the interesting, really interesting examples of public ownership that I found is uh, this thing called Milorganite, which is a, an organic fertilizer that um, yeah. is derived from the water reclamation uh, system in Milwaukee. And this was directly, this was a municipal enterprise set up uh, by the one of the longest standing socialist party administrations in a, in a major city in the United States history in the, in the 1920s to the 1940s. And it exists to this day and it makes money for the municipality in, in Milwaukee. Damn it, Thomas. If we can collectivize human feces <laughs> for the betterment of American society, we can come together. And anyway, that's, that's a pretty, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch that to uh, Dave Sirota, the speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. I think that's a keeper. <laughs> uh, that Malor is Malorganite. Is am I am I saying that right? Yeah, Millorganite. Yeah. Millorganite. So this is the waste product from the sewage sort of water reclamation system that they come together and they sell it as fertilizer, and then they take the proceeds and it goes to funding uh, public services. Is that right? Exactly, hundred percent. And I think it's fucking I think genius. other places other places may do the same thing. I think DC actually does the same thing, but Milwaukee is is actually branded. It's a thing you can buy in stores and and whatnot. You know, <laughs> as a, an actual thing. That's amazing. That's amazing. You can imagine the private sector would be would be happy to get its grubby hands on that and uh, and sell our waste, our collective waste products for 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 private gain. 
Uh, but let's talk a little bit about in closing here, one of the most interesting aspects of the book. And I think it's something that all of our listeners should really, we should have these arguments under our belt because, you know, certainly when you go online, for God's sakes, and you start debating with libertarians, if that's something that you do with your spare time, I'd advise against it. Uh, but when you go out into your communities and you face down some of these real mealy mouthed, uh, you know, thought leaders, the the big men of the city and the town and the county who 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 sort of have these uh, neoliberal free marketeer talking points, not so much internalized and memorized, but just sort of it's embarrassing the way they talk about these these economic uh, principles. Is public ownership inefficient? That is the slur, the slander that's oftentimes thrown in our directions. Well, you silly socialists just don't know how the world works. These are astonishingly inefficient. They were swept under the rug in the 1970s and 80s because of that, and they'll never come back. And, you know, you guys are just, uh, you're beating a dead horse. You've tried, you failed. Uh, Is public ownership inefficient? Neoliberalism has done a really, really good job on a couple of things. And one of that is exactly this, proselytizing that private enterprise, for-profit corporations, private enterprise is absolutely the most economically efficient thing that you could do. And everything else, not just public enterprise, but cooperatives and so other things are, are inefficient. And, you know, I went into this research, into this book, assuming that that probably wasn't entirely the case, but I wasn't, I was not expecting what I was, what I was about to find uh, when I did this. And, and I went through the academic literature of the past you know, half century on, on this question of efficiency. And I found that really to my surprise, and I think to the surprise of many people who have read the book and, and who I've talked to, that there isn't any sort of consensus in the academic literature, at least, on whether or not private ownership is more efficient than public ownership. So, I mean, I found dozens and dozens of studies by pretty mainstream academics who went into their particular field. I don't know, maybe it's water utilities in Africa or, you know, telecoms utilities in Europe or or so on. Whatever their sector is, whatever their period of time was, they went in and then they have all these great quotes where they say, well, to my surprise, the publicly owned enterprise or service or, or utility was as efficient or more efficient than the privately owned utility. Which which is just it's just crazy. I mean, mm. you know, you just they've just done such a good job of convincing the public that this is the case, that people don't even question it anymore, and and that they've been able to do this with without the sort of backing of the academic literature is is quite interesting to me. I mean, we can go through a lot of the examples. I mean, some of the interesting ones, you know, maybe some of the more interesting ones that people listeners might be might be interested in are the you know the German savings banks, for instance. The in Germany, there's a very robust uh, system of publicly owned banks, the Sparkassen banks, um, and uh, the OECD. You know, not exactly a, a left-wing organization. The the OECD came out, you know, in I think in the mid, like 2014, 2015, and they summarized this sector, the Sparkassen banks, and they wrote these these banks are at least as efficient as the commercial banks, and and they came out through the financial crisis without a scratch, almost. You That's know, right. the very very large uh, privately owned banks uh, had major problems in Germany, just like they did in the United States, but the the savings banks, the publicly owned banks, were very very stable. And that sector. Um, saved much of the German populace from the the ravages of the recession that were faced by those in the US and UK, for example, say pension funds and things like that. It's really, really critical in terms of, uh, yeah, people should people should look into that and study that model for sure. 
Exactly. And, you know, the UK uh, was basically the epicenter of privatization um, from the 1980s to the 2000s. I mean, that's one of the other interesting things, you know, that you would think that the United States was like, you know, the world leader in privatization, but it really wasn't. Um, the UK was was one of the world. I think out of the OECD, Britain privatized more assets than anyone else in in the OECD. The United States, we we talk a big game on on free market and privatization, but as I said, because of the way the political system is structured, we really don't privatize nearly as many things as as people in the rest of the world. I mean, it throws up all these very interesting dynamics. This is just a a little bit of a tangent. I mean, for instance, uh, I think in 2013, President Obama had a throwaway line on the budget where he said, oh, maybe we should privatize the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a, a massively large publicly owned enterprise in, in the U.S. and like, serves nine million people, seven states. You know, it's a legacy to the New Deal and Roosevelt and Norris and, and all of that. But, you know, President Obama, a Democrat, said, oh, maybe we should privatize the TVA. And all the Republican senators and congressmen from Alabama, Tennessee, you know, the service areas were like, no, we're not going to we're not going to privatize the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's a that's a terrible, terrible idea. I mean, we also we have we have Amtrak, you know, we have uh, Britain privatized its entire rail system and it was an absolute terrible catastrophe. And in the United States, we've had publicly owned rail systems since the 1970s because all of the previous privately owned rail systems uh, were going bankrupt. They wanted out of the passenger rail system. They, did, they didn't want to do passenger service anymore. And so, you know, we decided to set up a publicly owned system and it, per, you know, many people at the time thought, oh, this is only going to last a few years and, you know, passenger rail service is going to go the way of the dodo and, you know, it's replaced by buses, cars and planes. And in fact, Amtrak managed to basically you know, correct all of the failures of the previous private system. They brought in new trains, they rebuilt stations, they focused their energy on on certain places. And Amtrak is now a pretty critical, it's been growing, you know, year on year. It's a pretty critical aspect of our public transportation system. It's only going to be more critical uh, as climate change hits hits as well. Um, so, you know, we didn't privatize, you know, we have a public owned train system, we have a public post office, which the UK doesn't have anymore. They privatized their post office. And I think, you know, one of the one of the really interesting things from the efficiency debate was that, you know, Margaret Thatcher came in in the 1970s, 1980s, and there was this widespread, again, this widespread belief that they managed to, to get into the public consciousness that publicly owned enterprises in Britain were, were terribly inefficient and they should all be privatized and, and so on and so forth. But economic historians have actually looked back at that now and, and realized that, that that was completely not the, not the case. Um, the productivity growth in some of the British publicly owned enterprises like mining and transportation, communications and whatnot, they outpaced similar privately owned industries in the United States during this period, uh, you know, pretty consistently. You know, they were they were not inefficient when compared to the United States privately owned in, uh, industries. Um, and uh, and many of the problems, I think, that were existing in the publicly owned enterprises you know, th those were self-enforced uh, in, in many ways. You know, the, it's the thing about publicly owned enterprises is they are what you make of them. You know, they're they're a flexibly they're a flexible ownership form, which is I think why many people are attracted to them, especially in the present day. Um, you know, you unlike privately owned enterprises, which are really constrained by the market, they're constrained by quarterly returns, shareholder value. You know, this constant drive for growth and profit. Publicly owned enterprises can be deployed for whatever purpose you want to deploy them to, uh, but you also have to support them and you also have to, you know, make sure that they're doing the things that you want them to be doing. And I think this is the this is another aspect of the efficiency question. And it's really about how efficiency is measured. You know, many of the really traditional studies that have been rolled out 
to support the privatization agenda focus on a very, very narrow measure of efficiency. It's basically, you know, how much money do you make? What are your profits? You know, it's these really narrow financial metrics. But publicly owned enterprises around the world historically have been used and deployed for a variety of other purposes. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're much, they're purpose they have a social purpose that is much broader than simply making making profits um so you really have to look at that you have to look at that holistically and and you know again in in the chapter on efficiency in the book you know i start to take a look at the studies that do that and when you start to look at efficiency differently it really opens up a different picture of the comparative efficiency between private and, and publicly owned firms and that also is a lesson i think for the future on if we want to expand and scale up publicly owned enterprises and we want to democratize them, we want to make them more accountable, we have to really be very careful about what are the goals of a publicly owned enterprise. Like, why do we want to have a publicly owned enterprise? You know, if, if we just decide that the goal of a publicly owned enterprise is to make money, you know, and, you know, that may be acceptable. We decide that that's, that's fine. It just wants to make money. We measure against making money, right? You know, but if we decide that a publicly owned enterprise should do other things, which I think that definitely should, you know, ecological sustainability, employment, uh, you know, better, better working conditions, uh, better benefits, you know, so on and so forth, then you need to measure against those things to decide whether or not it's operating effectively or not. And so what you seem to be suggesting here is that um, not only contrary to this kind of neoliberal classical economics, uh, this, this, this idea, this bias, this slander, that public ownership is inefficient, that it could perhaps be even more efficient and also on metrics that are becoming more and more important by the day, such as, you know, uh, you know, overturning this ecological crisis that we're facing, uh, overturning this crisis in healthcare that we're facing. Uh, you know, you mentioned profits is a, a really important metric in terms of determining economic efficiency in capitalism. But what happens when people are, are pumping in 30% of their annual income in order to to procure health care, of course, that's going to be a profitable uh, industry, a profitable business. But is it something that's socially sustainable? Is it humane? Is it ethical? Is it all these other questions? And you're right to point to, you know, uh, this model of efficiency just can't quite answer these ever more pressing questions. So given the importance of some of the crises that we're facing right now, from education to healthcare to the ecological crisis, it seems like public ownership uh, absolutely must be put on the table um, right now. So give, give the audience in parting here, give the audience um, a little rallying cry for public ownership. Uh, I'm talking, we're talking to academics and activists and just regular Folks, workers, union members, community members, parents, um, people with grandchildren, uh, people who are not yet graduated from high school. What, what are the types of things that they should take away from our chat today and your book? What are the kind of action steps that you'd like to, to, to deliver uh, after this conversation today? Yeah, I think I'll tie that into the question of efficiency to start and just relay a, a story that I found um, in the writing of this book, which I had never even heard of this thing before. It's called it's a concept called remailing. And in some cases, 
let's say, for instance, a package is supposed to go from the Netherlands to Germany, two countries that are, are side by side to each other. In some instances, it's cheaper to first mail this package from uh, the Netherlands to India and then remail it from India to Germany because the postal rates are, are cheaper to do it that way. So, <laughs> so and, and this was a study. This isn't just me saying that. This yeah. was a study that yeah. basically said that from the from the perspective of efficiency, uh, from a sort of a, a very traditional neoclassical, you know, version of, of enterprise and firm level efficiency, this is this is efficient. You know, this is the most efficient thing because it, it costs the less amount of money. But from any other measure of efficiency, especially climate change and burning all that jet fuel to fly something halfway around the world and then fly it back, it's absolutely completely inefficient. So it really how efficiency is de is defined is, is is absolutely crucial in terms of a rallying cry for for public ownership. Uh, just recently, uh, I think a lot of New Yorkers experienced massive blackouts uh, because their for-profit electric utility, Con Ed, you know, basically cannot cannot handle or or cannot cannot provide uh, effective service and effective service at a good price for uh, New Yorkers in the midst of the effects of climate change. Uh, we've just seen that in California as well with PG&E, the massive. Uh, electric utility, for-profit electric utility there as well, who are being blamed for causing, uh, you know, a deadly fire, the campfire that killed, you know, almost 100 people uh, because of their faulty service and their faulty maintenance of of their equipment. Um, and this is symptomatic of for-profit corporations. I mean, they're going to basically increase costs. They are going to reduce maintenance. They are going to do everything to extract as much profit from local communities and from local economies as possible. Um, you know, this is the same in the UK in the water sector. I mean, massive underinvestment. I mean, this, this is what we were sold on with privatization. We were told that privatization was going to lead to all of these greater investments in service quality and costs were going to come down. And, and it was just going to be great to have these private enterprises, these corporations running our public services and, and running our, uh, running our utilities. And, and that's just, completely demonstrably has not been the case, um, especially in the UK. The, the railways are a complete catastrophe under privatization. Water, you know, it's just been extracting as much money as possible and doing almost no maintenance and just raising water bills and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that, that's the rallying cry for public ownership. You know, we need to bring these things back into public hands. I mean, we had them in public hands and they worked fine. You know, contrary to the neoliberal propaganda, you know, we had decades and decades of of public ownership that was very efficient and it provided low-cost services it provided the investment we needed for infrastructure i mean just look at you know the united states i mean the the entire free market economy in the united states is built upon public infrastructure that was developed in you know the the first half of the 20th century the highway systems you know the electric systems and, and so on and so forth you know, so we, we need to take these things back into into public ownership. You know, uh, we, are, we are facing a a multi multitude of crises, um, you know, the climate crisis, rising inequality, right wing authoritarianism and populism. You know, we're facing this multitude of crises. And and it's pretty clear that, as I mentioned earlier, neoliberalism has has hit the rocks. Um, and this this 40 year experiment that we did uh, is insufficient and has led to too many of these challenges that we are we're facing. So I think rather than retreat, uh, rather than retreat from democracy, uh, in many ways, which I think is sort of the centrist uh, 
centrist response to some of these challenges. Rather than retreat from democracy, we really, I think, want to re-embed democracy. And, and you know, we really want to to put democracy back into the economy. Um, you know, we, we, we want to rebuild economic democracy as the basis of genuine political democracy um, to counter these threats. And public ownership uh, is one of those is one aspect of that, and and uh, and one that I think people are increasingly turning to. I mean, I just talked about uh, electric utilities, and there's growing movements around the country uh, to remunicipalize their electric utilities. You know, New York, California, uh, Rhode Island, Maine, uh, Boulder, Colorado's had a long-standing effort to municipalize their electric utility in response to climate change issues. But it's not limited to climate change as well. Pe- activists in in various other sectors are turning to public ownership as as a way to counter corporate domination and and control and and the neoliberal agenda um, you know banking public banking you mentioned at the beginning uh, this weekend it's the 100 year anniversary of the Bank of North Dakota the the large public bank uh, we have an extremely vibrant public banking movement happening in the United States uh, especially in California where dozens of cities are are joining together with activist groups they have a huge coalition unions you know almost all the unions in in California a lot of the major cities a lot of environmental Groups. They've all come together in this sort of coalition uh, to get through public banking in, in California um, because people really understand that if you can get collective or democratic control of capital, you can really open up uh, so many possibilities for the, the very important things that need to be done, the very important social things that need to be done, you know, housing, uh, racial equity. Uh, environmental and you know, climate change and you know, so on and so forth. New York has a very vibrant public banking movement. You know, I've been talking to people in Europe who are involved in public banking over there and, and they're so impressed by what's developing in such a short time in the United States around public banking. It's like, you know, how do you get people involved in, and interested in banking? It's just this, this so opaque and uh, is so complicated and difficult. But what we have in the United States and activists are really really making huge strides there. Um, municipal broadband internet networks. I, I just mentioned, um, you know, sort of the infrastructure of the 20th century that was built through public uh, ownership. What's the infrastructure for the 21st century? Well, it's really a digital infrastructure. And you, in, in order for cities and counties, municipalities uh, to be competitive and to be able to exist economically uh, in the 21st century, you need to have this digital infrastructure and corporations uh, for-profit businesses aren't going to provide that. I mean, especially if you live in rural areas or, or poor communities, low-income communities, you know, the, these are basically bypassed by these large corporations because they're not totally. profitable. Totally. And in these cases, uh, public enterprises are coming in. We have public publicly owned broadband uh, is one of the fastest growing areas of public ownership in the United States. We have now, I think, somewhere around 500 or so communities have set up full publicly owned internet networks uh, as a way to do economic development and basically stabilize these local economic, these local economies in, in this globalized society. That's right. Rural broadband, um, fighting some of these electrical utilities in places like my home state of Virginia uh, are really shaking things up. Um, you have uh, rural broadband uh, sort of advocates. There's a state agency now that's developed. A, a friend of mine works for this. And, and this is something that, you know, you look at the capacities on the ground uh, that they have to work with and which what they end up doing is trying to incentivize and or force the various uh, telecommunications companies, corporations to to go into these areas, which are otherwise not deemed to be profitable or worthy of investment. Uh, but we need a much more imaginative 
uh, much more imaginative solutions to say to hell with. Look, if Comcast or or Verizon or some of these other major you know American-based telecommunications corporations uh, can't do it, well, to hell with them. We're not going to incentivize them. We're not going to give them. We're not going to sweeten the deal. We're not going to even force them. We're just going to push them out, and we're going to do it ourselves. And I think this this provides a really uh, amazing opportunity to to reshape the political and ideological landscape of the United States, you know, the, the political system itself, to change and shift up the dividing lines of to where people draw their lines in terms of how they how they identify politically on this this really ridiculous political spectrum that we've drawn up for ourselves, where there are no real choices. That, that meet the needs of the vast majority of people in the country. And this is what the project of, like, say, a Bernie Sanders uh, or, or other types of, of movements like that really, really have the promise of doing. So I'm going to get your comment on that on the B side. We're going to wrap up the A side today. We've had a really excellent chat. Again, Thomas Hanna, Research Director at the Democracy Collaborative in Washington, D.C., author of Our Commonwealth, The Return of Public Ownership in the United States. That's a really great book. People should uh, definitely pick this up. Um, if you're interested in municipal socialism, if you're thinking about how to take on your local electric utility, or if you're in the UK and you want to think about water privatization or the long legacy of public ownership and making strong, um, you know, empirically valid arguments against these, these movers and shakers that you're going to encounter in these local and state political arenas, pick up this book. It's going to help you out. Thomas, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that concludes today's A-Side of DPS. Thanks again to Thomas Hanna of the Democracy Collaborative for joining us and enlightening us about the history and the theory and the present, for that matter, of democratic ownership and uh, all that jazz. You guys now know more about the legacy of democratic ownership in America than you probably ever thought you would know. And there's much more ahead if you're a patron of DPS, that is. Head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and you will get access to my B-side with Thomas Hanna wherein we continue this really rich and dense conversation on public ownership in the United States and the United Kingdom and Europe and elsewhere. Uh, But you're going to miss that if you're not a patron. And again, uh, we don't get that Koch brothers money. R.I.P. David Koch. I hope you're enjoying the fiery pits of hell. (laughs) I myself am an atheist, but I I like to imagine that the very bad people here on Earth go to a very bad place. Uh, But in any case, we are not getting that Koch brothers money. I was not in his will. Uh, Surprise, surprise. I will not be getting any of that uh, bounty quicker picker upper or Charmin Ultra largesse coming my way anytime soon. Nor will I be getting any of that Tar Sands largesse or whatever the hell the Koch brothers have their hands in. They have their hands in almost everything. But with that being said, I can't do this without the generosity of my patrons. So consider becoming one of my 400-some-odd patrons, and you'll get access to the upcoming B-side as well. I'm thinking about adding on some additional subscriber benefits, maybe a weekly happy hour, something like that, where we all sort of jam out on Discord, maybe a, a, a phone. I think you can do voice chat over there on Discord, and we'll all crack a beer or a cup of tea, whatever is your preference and talk about uh, some of the issues of the day. I'm thinking about that. Patrons out there, give me a shout if you think that's a good idea. Could be fun, uh, but I want to know if there's interest for that type of thing. So that's the kind of things we do uh, as patrons of DPS. 
I know there are a lot of podcasts and video creators out there that are, that are desperately in need of your support. But if you benefit from this program on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or at all, I ask that you become a subscriber. All right. Dead Pundit. <laughs>